you used to walk me home from school in Carers. You used to take walk walk oh, yeah, down the bloody hill, yeah. Hill. yeah past yeah, the snowdrops. You and what's his name? Uh, Alistair. Alistair. Yeah. Past the snowdrops. That's right. Yeah. Those good times. Yeah. I liked living in the countryside. And those hills opposite used to. Oh yeah. Those walk. Oh man, snows. up the up the uh, up to the telegraph. Yeah. yeah and uh, the heather I remember like rolling in the heather and I remember walking up the pathway to that hill and uh, there being wild raspberries wild strawberries blackberries all the way up and like we were eating fruit all the way up up, walking up this hill eating fruit it was amazing yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Beautiful place. Beautiful times. And North Wales was amazing. Then we went to Coventry and it was hard. Then we went to Cardiff and we were trying to get ourselves back to to life. And Cardiff's a lovely city to, to be in. I had a hard time in school. Uh, the family... The wars in the family weren't over. They had just, like... They, they were different, but they were not over. And... I was all right. It's all right for me, Jack. I was okay. <laughs> By the time I got to be in the late teenager, I had kind of control over my life. Do you remember you? Do you remember me? And all our history Trapped in a memory Going down, down, down Down, down A sunless sea Down to a sunless sea Memories of my dad Episode 10 Friendship Part 2 This episode touches lightly On childhood trauma Divorce Bullying And dysfunctional family setups. Although my parents split up before I was conceived, both of them were committed to bringing up their two children. Because my dad was retired, he was the parent who looked after me the most. My mum went out to work and he provided the childcare for me and my brother. When I was three, we moved to the small village of Afonwen, which has since become a town. My parents bought a cottage, which they separated into two parts. My mum and my stepdad lived on one side, and my dad lived on the other, much smaller side. The partition between the two households was a door. I've asked them all for more details about how these arrangements and decisions came about, but I haven't received any definitive answers. It just seemed sensible to everyone at the time and evolved semi-organically. When we lived in North Wales, we lived in the same house. Yeah? Yeah. You and mum. Yeah. But you were divorced. Yes. And we, you partitioned the house in the middle. Yes. So you, what, what did that mean practically? What was, your, what was your side of the house like? Well, it was... Uh... It wasn't a, it was a, a, a house in the country, so it wasn't a sort of standard house. And it had a, you entered it from the front door into a long front room, and behind that was a very long kitchen. 
this is downstairs. And we divided it up whilst we divided the front room by, with a partition and a door between them. And then we divided the kitchen in the same way so that it, what had been a sort of huge farm kind of kitchen became your side of it was a very small kitchen and the rest of it, the other side of it, became my bedroom. And there was a small downstairs toilet at, uh, at the back door, which was in my territory. It was a, a toilet with a, a wash basin beside it. So that was my bathroom. And there was a, a recess with the oil-fired boiler, because uh, it was oil-fired at that time, the central heating system, uh, in, in it. And there was just room in there to get a cooker in and sort of turn it into a very small kitchen. So that became my kitchen. So you had a fitted kitchen, essentially, yeah. but small. A small one, very small, yeah. And you had a tiny little area to sleep in. Beside, in the front in the room, front room so that I could sleep in that on a single on a kind of divan which it was actually in a behind a bookcase structure I'd made um, and the reason that you would sleep there generally speaking was that at weekends me and Tony my brother came to stay with you so. yeah. in your side of the house yes yeah and our room which was generally your room mm-hmm. had a Bunk bed. A um, double bed. A double bed bunk bed, if you see what I mean. The top bunk was a wide double bed sized space. And so was the bottom bunk, yeah. And Tony would sleep underneath. Yeah. I would sleep up the top. Yeah. And there was a spiral staircase of of steps up to the top one. That's right. And in that room as well, we could draw on the walls, couldn't we? It was that was the room. That was the room, yeah. You had lots of pens. Uh, yes. Felt tip pens and everybody who came to the house drew on the walls. Yes. And that's like, yeah, everybody's the wall. Everybody's yeah. wall, it was called, yeah. yeah. You've got one in this house now, actually. Yes, we've had them in several places. That's we? right. My dad fitted a kitchen in his part of the house, a tiny room that was always filled with home brew and homemade jam experiments. My brother and I visited my dad's side of the house for weekends and slept in a bunk bed structure that he had set up, two sleeping areas constructed out of wood. I slept in the top bunk, which felt like a treehouse crossed with a cocoon. You reached my bunk by clambering up some slightly spiralled stairs made out of different sized planks. My brother is six years older than me, so he liked the bottom bunk best because it had a proper bed in it and there was a TV down there. I was happy in the top bunk with my story tapes and my books. Dad painted all the walls in our room white and bought a load of felt tip pens. He wrote the words everybody's wall in big uneven block letters and marked out spaces for people to create pictures. They were the reserved parts of the wall. Everyone who came to the house was encouraged to draw on the walls in these reserved areas. In between the spaces was the most interesting part of the walls to me because that was communal art. In those spaces you could add to or adapt each other's doodles and pictures. Over the years the walls became a multicoloured piece of community graffiti. By the time I came along, you were pretty much at home all the time. Like, you brought me up, like, as a toddler, and you definitely carried that on in North Wales. You were doing that with both me and Tony. You were looking after both of us. Well, by North Wales, I was retired, too. Yeah, Mum was going out to work. Uh, My stepdad was on the scene as well. Well, not not at the beginning, of course. But they met in Kings Lynn, yeah, but they met. But he remained there. Yeah, but... 
after we moved sure, to Wales, sure. didn't he? Until Initially, because yeah, but he came to visit, and then he yeah. came to, to, to and live, he and then he got to married start. to Mum. Yeah, um, and you were in the next room across. Yeah, we split the house, and we 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 planned it that way. You know that we would make division in the house, and I'd have this bit. She, yeah, she would have the other bit, and Mervyn would come up. You know, and do her bit when. So it was meant like yeah, it's quite a because poly, of the original intention. It's quite a poly the original setup. Intention was to try to find two houses. Yeah, like with the money we got from to, from Kings Lynn, we would find two small houses. In um, yeah, in Carewis. Well, we've we covered, one, and we were going to get those, but then George, you know, building a house behind. So I said to George, "Could we buy this?" So we bought that, and then that's when we decided to actually make this strange division. When we stayed at weekends, why was there this idea that we kind of because we did literally we had to, we we went from one part of the house where our bedrooms were to the other part yeah. of the house. So essentially, we had two bedrooms, yeah. like each, really, in a way. I mean, I it wasn't a massive house. I tried to sort of separate the whole thing because I used to cook for you. That was the point. So I did have a little cooker. And at the weekends, you yeah. cooked for us. We never went. Yeah, we never went back to our that, half no, of the I mean, house. If you've gone, I mean, you, they, as it grew, obviously, as you got older, and all, there'd be occasions when you go in and out. But it was that. It, for some reason, it was a sort of, we should be in two different houses. Yeah. And if we were, you know, kids would come from there. So we had to, you, you made the house two houses. So, yeah. Now, whether it was, I mean, I certainly think, I'm sure I preferred it. <laughs> and I'm trying to think whether it was me who instigated it or whether we both, you know, it, it seemed automatic. Because, as I say, we had expected to be in two separate houses. Yeah. So we weren't thinking of ourselves as a kind of... As people... Even even if we were sort of separate, you know, as living close by. We hadn't intended to live close by. We didn't just see my dad at weekends. He looked after us generally when we weren't at nursery or school. I went to primary school in Kerouis, the town at the top of the hill, at the time, it was officially the smallest town in Europe. I would get the village taxi in the morning, later the minibus, due to mild population growth. And in the afternoon, my dad would pick me up. Together we would walk down a footpath past beautiful countryside, talking about the world, stopping at my favourite tree, passing the bluebells and snowdrops when they were in season. When we got back to the cottage, he would make me a tiki snack that generally involved dry fruit and chunks of cheddar cheese. Once, when I was helping him pick damsons from the tree by the garage, we saw a kingfisher fly over the lake. The door that formed the partition between the parts of the house had a sign on it. When Dad was writing, the sign would be turned to the side that had a please do not disturb sign on it. My dad had added extra phrases around it, such as a slightly censored bugger off, go away, little poor Lockians keep out, and children from Porlock unwelcome. These last two I have combined in my memory to make small Porlockians beware, which is what I always remember it as saying. On the door between the two houses, on the partition, yeah. like yeah. the partitional door, yeah. there was a sign. Do you have that sign around, actually? Do you have that sign anymore? I don't, I th- I, I don't remember how it got lost, but I, I, I haven't seen it I can't it for see a long it. Time. I haven't seen it for a while. No. Um, do you remember what was on that? Yes, except I can't remember the... The exact wording. The exact wording. 
because they're in the swimming people account, wasn't it? On uh, one side it said keep out yes. small Porlockians. poor Lockians, yeah. like the man from Porlock yeah. who interrupted Coleridge Kublai doing Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan. Yeah. Small Porlockians beware because you were uh, were and are a writer and you yes. didn't want to be disturbed if you were writing. Yeah. Yeah. And the, on the other side it said come in do you remember what that side said? No, I don't. Actually. I think he said something like, come in, bow three times. and <laughs> Yeah, there was, there was something about bowing three times. Yeah, and sort That's of, right. you know, be contrite and be- yeah. well-behaved. I can't yeah. remember the exact wording yeah. of it. That was the sign that separated the house. I remember, like, you know, yeah. we could come into our your house, yeah. your side of the house, your part of the house, when it said, come mm. in, yeah. Yes, because like, I think the front door was actually in your section of the room. That's right. Right into the room. That's and but I was trying to think how that worked. How did I get to there? Well, I'd have had to have gone into your half of his half of the house to get out of the front door. But actually, I remember now. I had the back. I used the back door. Okay, which was in my bit. So the back door was, was the front my door front door. For your but part I would. Of the I mean, house. I'd sometimes go out of your door if I'd been in. You know, because particularly before Mervyn came up. Yeah, before my stepdad. I mean, there was just in. June in your house, you know. So and you looked after more. us, so you would move into our side. Yeah, and sometimes. also things that there was a lot of building, you know, partitioning and all that going on, and that. And also, you had to come through to our side of the house to use the bath to wash. And yeah, and we went from our side of the house to your side of the house to visit at weekends. That's right. That's right. And you, and you, were... <laughs> and you don't remember who came up with that idea? I don't actually. Well, I mean, I, I don't know, really. I suppose it was the idea that you were... I don't know why it was so formalised in a way, except that I would have had to have lived in with your family. For, if yeah, I, you, you know. would have been like a lodger yeah. rather than a yeah. neighbour. The man from Porlock, who interrupted Coolidge while he was halfway through writing Kublai Khan, causing him to fail to finish the poem because he couldn't remember the ending. I didn't understand the reference properly until I took A-level English literature. Back then, it sounded to me like a type of goblin, and I felt quite comfortable being thought of as a goblin. On the other side of the sign, there was a rectangle of white paper crudely pasted on with copy decks. On it was written, When this sign is in place, small Porlockians may enter if they are suitably respectful and bow three times. That was a joke. We didn't have to bow. We didn't have to stay out at all, really. We knew there was no way that he would turn us away if we had reason to disturb him. When the keep outside of the sign was showing, I used to love standing with my back against the door, listening to the sound of him typing. I like to imagine him as a magician who captured stories using magic machines. Then you got yeah, a word it was an electronic typewriter, but it had a dedicated, had a 60 kilobyte memory or something. And a little dedicated, it was, a dedicated, a dedi- it was a dedicated word press, it didn't do anything else. And it had a 60 kilobyte memory and a little brown, little sort of bronze coloured television screen on which the page of text would appear. It was actually very simple but very effective. And you could, you know, you could type on it, you could erase, you could alter. And you sat in the room. You could move type passages of type about and then you could print it. It, on a daisy wheel printer. That's right, I remember the daisy wheel going round. Because you, you, you worked in 
You were in half the house. You lived in a different half of the yeah. house, and I had a room upstairs. Yeah. No, I'm I'm thinking when I remember it is from North Wales, so I remember oh, right. being in a different yes. half of the house. On your yeah. door would be a sign that would say "Small Poor Lockians Keep Out." Oh, that's right. Yeah. Poor Lockians for is it's from Coleridge and Kubla Khan. Somebody disturbed the visitor from Porlock who disturbed him in the, in middle, the middle of, of writing Kubla Khan. In the middle of writing, it was never finished. And he never remembered the rest never of it because it was it was a sort of opium dream, right. wasn't it? So he had he lost his uh, yeah. vision. Yeah. That part of my childhood was full of beauty, wonder, and magic, and my dad was the centre of all of it. It was also the time that I fell in love with stories. When I was eight, my stepdad got a job in Coventry and everything changed. My mum, my stepdad, my half-sister, my brother and I moved into a house in one part of town. And my dad rented a flat close by. After living with my dad all my life, he was now a bus ride away. There wasn't room for me and my brother to visit him together. So we alternated weekends until my brother went away to university. From then I had him to myself. But this visit wasn't a door away. And when I wasn't with him, I was in a very different atmosphere to any I'd known before. Like, apart from the most traumatic moments in my in my early life. Yeah. So but all of the good like all of the good parts, all of the bits that weren't traumatic in my childhood, you were there in. And the bit that was traumatic in my childhood Well you were there though. I did go to your house at weekends and I went on holidays and I didn't tell you about it and I'm sorry about that. But it was the only way to get by at the time. That's what you no, it wasn't that. I mean I'm not don't feel I'm not blaming you. It's simple, I didn't want I didn't want you to hear about... In a, in a way, I don't know. It wouldn't necessarily I didn't be want, a good thing. You couldn't I mean, do anything. What could you have done? You'd have just been worried. And, and, and I mean, yeah, maybe you could have taken me out of that I'd situation, but I don't... talk to Mervyn. Yeah, yeah. You probably would. Um, well, Mum is who you should have talked to if you were going to talk to anybody. And you may have been able to have a, an effect by talking to them. So, I, in a way, maybe I was being... Being being stupid, but the thing is, mm. I didn't want to tell you because I wanted to maintain the brilliant element of coming to your house. So when I went to your house, it was like going to fucking heaven. It was like perfect. It was like I was going from the fr- frying pan into the like lagoon or whatever, like rather than the fire. I mean, it was like well, it was cool. Well, I was yeah. It was yeah. Well, it was great it was times. Great. It was completely child focused, as they'd say. Like it wasn't because you were having a bad time with it. You were and enjoying I was helping yourself. in your school too. On and on. Yeah, you were helping in the school. You were enjoying my my company, and I was enjoying yeah. your company. We were being like you made me breakfast in bed. You read, read me the Lord of the Rings, not just yeah, the Red Lord of the Rings. You read me the Iliad, the Odyssey. You read me a number of other books as well, the Narnia books probably at some point, and like. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. The, I mean, the Moomins and the Narnia books were from when I was little. But yeah, you, you read to me those weekends and you were like made the best food ever. Like macaroni and cheese, toad in the hole, like bangers and mash, like fried breakfasts. Like it wasn't necessarily a fried breakfast. It was a surprise. I never knew what it was going to be. It could be anything. It would be great. Like it would be like poached eggs and tomatoes <laughs> on toast or scrambled eggs or full fry up or like I never knew what it was going to be. It was great. I mean, there was so a you know, little room. Yeah, it was an incredibly privileged element to my childhood. It was incredibly privileged, but it was great. 
But he was yeah, lucky. No, I wasn't far away. I used to come up. Yeah, but you was in a terrible tower block. Well, I always call it a tower block, and, and Steve Weir said I shouldn't call it a flat. Right? I always thought that well, it was, like, was well designed. Yeah, it was a nice flat. If it had been in a smart block, it would have been, you know, the, the actual physical yeah. the design. Of I agree. It good. It, I agree. And the, and the, the, the neighbourhood around it didn't really affect me. It affected you much it more. More in the end. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it didn't affect me at the time. I mean, you had the scuffles with the local kids, and you had the had to deal with your corner shop being burnt down like four times or whatever, and the Asian shopkeeper being chased out of the town, and the pub next door with the Rottweilers barking all day and all night, and then smashing your windows with golf balls, and like the other old people on the estate being vulnerable and you being worried about that but you knowing that you were not necessarily of an age you could deal with those kids anymore you had to deal with all of that side of stuff i just came to this bloody brilliant paradise where you like met like I, and there was like playing like there was logo and basic on the computer because you had this computer because you just got into that and you had your art thing you were doing paintings like you were doing drawings with crayons and inks it was like a wild time for you, I reckon. You were good. having pretty good yeah. times. You were retired, but you were really kind of healthy. Well, and you were getting to do whatever yeah. you liked. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have much spending, only on breakfast for me. You know, we used to, we used to go and watch him play rugby and what. Yeah, you and Tony had a great time, yeah. I'm sure. So it was a different, like, it was, yeah. At the beginning, it was, was every other weekend. Tony went, no, was, initially me and him went together. Yeah. Then you decided every other weekend, That's which right. was a canny move because there's six years between us. So you yeah. got to have... Have, no, it worked. Really it was well. great. It worked really well. And then when Tony left for university, it went, which was a good thing because I needed it every week by that stage because I had this privileged stuff. But at the, in the other house, it was not like that at all. That's what I didn't know. Then. No, but that was good because of the fact that it went down to once a week at least. So it was very good. And you took a, took us away to Cornwall and stuff. Like I know why I didn't tell you, and it's not your fault that you didn't notice because you didn't see because they didn't show people because that's what happens in these kind of environments people get locked into this kind of sort of scene and they don't show it to anybody because they are ashamed in xanadu did kubla khan a stately pleasure dome decree where alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea on my first night in Coventry, my dad was supposed to stay with us too, but he and my mum had a big argument and he decided to leave. I ran out into the street after him, crying, and he turned and came down to my level. He told me he was sorry and that he loved me, but that he had to leave. I need to make it clear to your mum that we aren't married and she can't speak to me in that way. He turned away and walked to the end of the street, turning the corner and disappearing. My mum came out and pulled me back into the house. From that moment, my life changed. I spent most of my time living in a house with thin walls where I felt I wasn't safe, my mum and my stepdad's marriage slowly deteriorating in a house full of rage, pain, and repressed and overexpressed emotions. Mm. And I have experiences that aren't easy for me to think about, so I, I know that that's not a very enjoyable experience, but what I do know is that I'm lucky... Um, and there are things that everybody, well, not everybody, that's the sad thing, but most of us have things that we can say we're lucky, are lucky and good. And it's good to remember those things and not just always yeah, think yeah. of the bad things that make you feel bad uh, that have happened. Absolutely. And 
you know, that, well, you know that's why I feel very pr- lucky. Well, that's why I'm lucky to have had so mm. much light uh, from you well, as a father yeah, and as a friend. Within these dark years of my life, there is still a big chunk of light, and that was provided by my dad. His house was a sanctuary, as were the holidays he took me on. He also started helping out at my primary school, so he was often close to me, even when I wasn't staying with him. His new flat was in an ugly concrete building in a run-down area of Coventry. It was small, but he made something beautiful inside it. Like in North Wales, he adapted it, creating different areas using the space in clever ways. He had messy and ingenious contraptions rigged up so that he could write or make paintings using wax crayon and ink. The contraptions reminded me of Professor Brainstorm, as did the pairs of reading glasses he had lying around. His flat felt like the kind of flat the borrowers would make in a shoebox. He painted the doors white, bought some new felt tips, and then everybody's doors began to fill with art. My dad would often cook toad in the hole or macaroni cheese. In the mornings, I would get into his double bed and watch his black and white TV whilst he made me a cooked breakfast in bed. While I was eating it, he would read to me. He read me the Iliad and the Odyssey. My brother had got into the Lord of the Rings, so he read that to me too. He had never read it before, so we both experienced it for the first time, together. Back when I first wrote this piece, I was talking to him and discovered that he'd forgotten that he'd ever read me Homer. But he did still remember reading me the Lord of the Rings. Even as the sun, returning beyond hope, gleamed upon Mindolian in the morning. Out of doubt, out of dark, to the day's rising, he rode, singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. Hope he rekindled, and in hope ended, over death, over dread, over doom lifted, out of loss, out of life, into long glory. But Mary stood at the foot of the green mound, and he wept, and when the song was ended, he arose and cried, Theoden King, Theoden King, farewell. As a father you were to me for a little while. I chose not to tell him what was happening in the other house. I didn't want to bring my darkness into the light that he was making. Something that you also said, which I didn't manage to catch on mic at the time, I think you said it and something else was happening and people were talking and then uh, it just wasn't appropriate to pick it up. Um, but you said like that was around about the time you started writing and that you kind of yeah. the first kind of writing you, you did was about animals and yeah, stuff. That's true. Yes, that was true. Um, I mean, my favourite book around that time, I think, was, was White Fang. By Jack London. By Jack London. But I also read a number of other, because of that, you know, I look, uh, I don't know whether my parents got from the library or bought them, but somehow or other, I remember I did read a number of other sort of contemporary animal stories. Right. Did you read Tarka the Otter and stuff like that? That, that was much late. Well, that was a, it started maybe a year or so later. But Tarka the Otter, I really was, was incredibly impressed by and sell other salmon, and there was one about the falcon. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because you read, I think you read me Tarka the Otter, and you read me uh, White Fang and Call of the... Did I? I don't know if you read me Call of the World or not. Maybe I read that myself. Did I really? I read those to you. 
Yeah, I mean, they were, they're not the ones that are significant to me. The ones no. that are big to me are The Lord of the Rings yeah. and The Iliad and The Odyssey. Yeah. Those are the, yeah. the ones that really resonated with me. But you read those books and I liked them, yeah. yeah. But I did read your stories, other stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah you read a lot. Of, you read a whole variety of stories, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, so I don't remember that. So, <laughs> so you were right... I remember the reading of The Lord of the Rings, but yeah. My dad had his own difficulties during the Coventry years. A local gang of kids singled him out, broke his windows with golf balls and made him feel unsafe. He once told me that the first time he ever felt like an old person was when he went out to try and reason with the kids and their leader threatened him. He didn't tell me about that till much later when I was an adult. I'm glad we both had the chance to fill each other in, but I can understand why neither of us shared them at the time. But then when we finally moved down to Cardiff, which your mum must have got the hair, must have had, she was down there a bit before. I think, yeah, she was living, lodging with somebody before the house became, but when the, when she moved into the house, yeah, we were to move down. You became our lodger. We all went down. You became we our lodger. In van. I remember, no, I remember the van. You became our lodger. But you did do kids. all of the washing up. There was lots of arguments about well, washing I up. People were always to the school every day. You, you and Mum were always both saying to me separately, "Oh God, the washing up!" Like <laughs> she didn't want you to do the washing up, but you were, insisted on doing the washing up, and she didn't think you did the washing up very well, and you thought you did too much of the washing up. When my mum and stepdad's marriage finally self-destructed, my mum, my sister, and I moved to Cardiff. My dad moved back in with us as a lodger. He had two rooms of the house. He looked after me and my little sister, becoming a second father to her during some of her dark years, bringing some light into her childhood. And you were a lodger. You were like a lodger rather than a neighbour. There was a a, a much more ambiguous uh, separation of the parts of the house. Yeah, I mean, I was renting my room. Yeah. Oh, so you paid paid rent uh, to mum. Okay, that's interesting. By Cardiff... My dad was an older man. His hearing wasn't very good anymore, which was useful to him in some ways because he couldn't hear all the arguments that ripped through that house. He's adaptable and possibly too forgiving, so he managed to create an eye in the storm. Again, I didn't talk to him about the storms. Not the one my mum was whipping into her children and not the systematic bullying I was experiencing in my new secondary school. But again, despite his ignorance of the danger, he still provided a haven. I spent a lot of time with him. As I entered my teens, our conversations became about more adult topics like art and politics and belief. He read my writing and consistently gave it unjustified praise. I tried to read his writing, but couldn't really understand it. We got drunk together. We smoked together. We would go out for meals to La Lupa, the local Italian restaurant, and stay there drinking until it closed. He came to see me in every play that I performed in. He believed in me. He still does. He's always certain that whatever I'm working on is going to make it big. And I don't even have any money and stuff. Like, oh, that's my immediate worry. It's just trying to get... You've got the show on, though. Yeah, I got the show. Yeah, That's great. It may change. And art's brilliant, but what does it do? Does it change anything? I think it may well. <laughs> well I love, Not immediately. I love that you can still have but such optimism I... and romanticism. Well, I, I love it. No, I love it. I, I, I wish I could. I wish I, I wasn't 35 and already <laughs> like, oh, God, there's no choice. There's no answer. No, I mean, I think it could be sensational. 
<laughs> my, the show, the family tree that my dad thinks will save me and the world. Well, no, uh, I hope it coming will. to a, an internet near you. You can never uh, actually speak. Say with, with, it's a, a www.familytree.co.uk. It's a possibility. That's. I have long circular conversations with him about whether luck rather than merit is more important. He agrees on paper that luck and privilege are more important factors than talent. But when he sees something that he thinks is great, he believes that it will be successful. It's odd to me that he can have this kind of belief as someone who has spent all of his life not having his novels or his poetry published. Someone who has had a few brushes with success, but has ultimately not made it. So you were writing when you were going to that museum? Uh, well, wait a minute, which would have been... I was still in, in Bristol, wasn't I? So that would have been... Thirty-two, and I was about eight. No, but then we moved to London. It probably was right. But I started writing animal stories. You know. Right. So you kind My of father uh, sort of read and you know talked to me about. That. Right, because your your father at least was a reader, right? Oh, yeah, he was a great reader, yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't he who, who encouraged me with animal stories. That was just me. That was my, you know, my taste at the time, what I wanted to read. But, um, right, and you started writing around 10 or something. Yes, I started writing around 10 or something, and, I, uh, and as I say, I was writing animal stories. Right, and you're, you're now 93, yeah. and you're still writing? Not animal stories. <laughs> No, but that's like 83 years that you've been writing. What, since then? Well, yes, but I didn't write all the time after that. But, I mean, that was a period when I did do a bit of writing and then I probably wasn't until I was in my teens, you know, at secondary school. Yeah, of of course. I mean, everybody has, like, ebbs and flows and and years when they don't write. But you've basically been a writer for 83 years. Yes, I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when you've done 83 years, it really doesn't matter if you've been published or not. You've done the time. You are a writer. There's no way or question that you are a writer at this point. Mm. Which is probably quite nice. I always question if I'm a writer. Yeah. Well, I don't really question it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, it's very useful now, too. Right. Gives you something that you can do. Right. You know, I couldn't make films anymore. Or, right. Uh, but you can write. You can manage to write, even if it's cemented writing. <laughs> you can still write. <laughs> but as bittersweet or even annoying and frustrating as his belief in my work is now, I don't think I would still be making stuff if it wasn't for the belief that he put into my work then. His belief in things like seeing the good in people, making the best of situations, thinking your novel will be published and make enough money to solve all the people he loves problems is a double-edged sword. In Cardiff, he definitely had his vision of what was happening in that household distorted by the myths that he told himself about how life could be for me and my sister. Even before he became someone with dementia, we would disagree about what happened in that house. He would remember the story he was telling himself, and I would surprise him with the context around it, the darker things that he didn't hear or see. 
despite living there. When I went away to university, we would speak on the phone for hours. He came up to visit me regularly, taking my girlfriend and me out for big drunken meals. Again, he came to see every production I was involved in and was the life and the soul of all of the after parties. Where's my dad? I said once to my girlfriend, who I'd left looking after him. Oh God, I've lost him, she said. I found him in a room with a young man whose nickname was Slutboy, both of them happily taking a hit off of a Yoda-shaped bong. I took him back to the main party. It was a busy night, and since the party was celebrating a play I'd written and directed, I felt I had a responsibility to mingle. Later that evening, I found my girlfriend frantically looking for him again. We spent the rest of the night searching the university for him. Which was actually quite fun. It was the early days of our relationship, so everything was an adventure. When we couldn't find him anywhere, we gave up and went to the campus visiting room that he was staying in, where we found him sleeping it all off in bed. When we knocked on the door, he woke up, and we sat on the edge of his bed and had a nightcap. I remember thinking about sitting next to him in bed as a child, and how I'd never expected him to live to see me be 19. My girlfriend would go on to become my partner and we have been together now for 19 years. He believes in her work too, constantly asking if her novel has been published yet, believing it's so good that it's just a matter of time before it hits the big time. He keeps suggesting that she's the modern day equivalent of Virginia Woolf, which to my mind isn't a very apt analogy, apart from the fact that they are both women who write novels. At university, I took ecstasy and found it a powerful and important experience. In some ways, it opened doors to me that I'd closed during my childhood. I wanted to share the experience with my dad, so I arranged for him to come to visit. I'd already told him about my previous experiences and sent him some reading materials about the drug. Unfortunately, by the time I was doing this, my dad had a dodgy heart, and so I didn't want to give him any pills. But he smoked weed and he enjoyed the love. My dad has always been someone full of love. How do you say goodbye? I don't really know. I think all you can do is say goodbye. I can't formulate how you should say it. That maybe depends upon you. I mean, I would say it with great love and affection for the life that I have lived, the people that I have known. I wish the timing had worked out differently, though, as I would have loved to take ecstasy with my dad. He would have loved it. A couple of years after finishing university, my partner and I moved to London. We moved there partly so that I could be near my dad during his final years. Between then and September 2018, I didn't live further than 20 minutes away from him. When he came to London and started renting a flat from my eldest sister, he brought back everybody's wall in his hallway. And it's been lovely to see a new generation of children get some of the wonder that I had, although fewer adults have contributed to the new walls because it's a pretty tight hallway to sit in. His London flat was still filled with contraptions, but in later years, many of them were designed to help him navigate being less physically able than he was. Devices for picking things up or moving things about. 
A lifetime of thinking of the world in this way has prepared him well in many ways for finding strategies to mitigate the frustrations and restrictions of ageing. You, st- you have to take quite a lot of pills every day. Oh, no, yeah. Good God, yes. Oh, no, I've got sort of various conditions, you know. Arthritis and like, carpal tunnel syndrome. In the and, you, and I guess things have become harder to do, and so you've had oh, to come yeah, up with strategies. You, know you have Jane to come yeah. every day to see the jars that need opening. That's right, because you can't open jars. In the end, there must there is a kind of descent, which is in fact sort of back in back backward. But yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, well, what's the problem? How do we work out a solution? And you have to do that all the time in your day to day life. Yeah, I should imagine. I mean, like you've yeah. got strategies for how you remember your pills. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I wrote this piece, I lived round the corner from him. I saw him daily, unless somebody else was seeing him or he was staying with one of my siblings. In some ways, I had become his carer. Certainly, I am one of many people who has provided him with love and support. I've been friends with him for 38 years and when I see him now we are both haunted by memories of when he was a different person I often want to talk to the dad I used to know that dad is still there he's within the person I know now and he's inside my memories and the memories of the people who knew him but he's not fully there not in that body And he never will be again. But then I'm a different version of me. And I will never be the people that I have been again. I'm just very glad that we are still good friends. Down to a Sunless Sea on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed. Both should be available anywhere that you get your podcasts. You can find Down to a Sunless Sea Memories of My Dad on Facebook. It's on Twitter at SunlessPod. You can email the show at down to a sunless pod at gmail.com. The episodes and the show notes are all collected together at downtoasunlesspod.com And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at GooseFact101 The artwork for this show was designed by my brother Tony Pickering For more art by Tony, go to pick-art.co.uk If you go to podcastviews.com, then there's a survey there that I'd really appreciate you filling in. It only takes a few minutes, and if you do it, you can be entered into a prize draw for a £50 Amazon voucher. 
This survey was created by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust so that they can get an idea of the impact that their funding has had. And if you are filling out that survey, Down to a Sunless Sea counts as Getting Better Acquainted because Getting Better Acquainted is the podcast that it evolved out of and that it's produced by. It's been unconventional, really, the parenting decisions in the family. Some of them have been really good. (laughs) Uh, Some of them have not been so good. Um, but they've, they've, they've been unconventional. Nobody's, everybody's been thinking outside the box, I guess you could say, in this family. And they're born outside the box. Yeah, born outside the box might <laughs> unfortunately box, be yes. our family. That's our family's autobiography. And not in a good way, necessarily. Like, you know, thinking, no, people think no. thinking outside the box is a good idea. It's not oh, always geez. a good idea. No. That's the point. Scrolling to now, you're still a father to all of these people. They're all adults now, they've all grown up, they've all found themselves or are finding themselves or have found and lost and found themselves again and all of the things that people do who are adults. I mean, God knows how many times I've found myself. I mean, how many times? Like, everyone, what, and I, I think everybody finds themselves once a week. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, well, no. all those moments <laughs> yeah. when you think, yeah, I get it now, it's all, all right, everything's okay, and then that doesn't last that long. Now we're in a situation where like the role of the children I guess is more mutually supportive than it is when you're a child so like you do stuff for us and we get to do stuff for you and and increasingly there are more things that you Reverses, yeah, and you lot looking after me, yeah. That is, that is, I guess, what's well, happening now, yeah. In fact, I mean, yeah. You, okay, I look after myself to some extent, but that's all the agency for all that, you know. Joe got Joe got the flat, you know, puts me in the flat, you were living but nearby, and Joe, you know, yeah. You. Well, I come in like, well, there's a lot of so things, I'm, well, I do a lot around here, and I, yeah, and when you've been. Jen, when you've not been very well, yeah. you know, we've been taking quite well, a lot of... But you're all, you're all shoulder, conscious of... Shoulders. I mean, I don't realise this, but you, I'm sure you're all, you're all conscious of that reversal now. Yeah. That you're, you're, you all think of me in that, from that point of view, well, which I find strange. Well, primarily, I still tend to think of you well, I don't, in the other way. I know. don't so much as some, and, and, and there are different no. opinions within different children, but definitely we see you... Uh, as some in a different way Depends. yeah well yeah but not as somebody without autonomy none of us believe in that like no, no. in no, different no. ways there's di- people have different attitudes towards the idea of autonomy and people define autonomy differently but we all think that you should have the best life that you want while you're in a situation where you can have that yeah but Harry was my teacher and he was, I, I got very friendly with him. You know, he was very supportive of my writing and that sort of thing. And his wife came to the school when he did and took over the school dinners, which were pretty abominable before that. You know, they were sort of a watery rice pudding and sort of, you know, badly cooked cabbage. And Hetty came and, and sort of turned it all around and introduced macaroni cheese into the, the school dinner menu. That's when I became an aficionado of macaroni cheese. Which fed into the next generation, because you always used to make macaroni and cheese for us. Yeah, and you're now and that, you Now I make macaroni and cheese, me and Jen make macaroni and cheese, yeah. yeah. So I guess that's where we we, all, we have uh, have Hetty to thank for yes, the macaroni cheese influence yeah. in our lives, which I'm, I found, I've always found to be amazing. It's like 
one of my desert island meals if I had to pick one, you know. Macaroni and cheese. Macaroni and cheese, for sure. Mm-hmm. Me too.